Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part seven in our series on the Gospel of John. Today's message is entitled Jesus and the Temple. This was delivered on Sunday, December 18th. Today we look at an interesting passage in which Jesus comes to the temple in Jerusalem, runs a lot of people out of there, turns over tables, makes a mess of things. And we're going to ask ourselves, what did Jesus mean by this? What did it mean to the people hearing it? And and finally, what does it mean for us some 2,000 years later? Also, I just wanted to remind you that we are having our Christmas Eve services coming up this Saturday at 4 and 5.30 p.m. These are all ages services, so we don't provide child care or anything like that, but it is a fun service for the whole family. We have Christmas songs, lots of Christmas goodies, and a, a message on the Christmas story. This will also take place of our Sunday service that we would normally have, uh, which would be on Christmas Day. So come on out and join us. All right, well, let's head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington. Thanks for listening. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remember what is written. Remember that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed in the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to any of them, for he knew all people. He did not need human testimony about them, for he knew what was in them. Lord, this morning, we just ask for for eyes to be open to what you're doing and for ears to be attentive to what you're saying, uh, that we would encounter your spirit in these words today. In Jesus' name. Well, last week, I I swear, this, this second chapter of John, I think John is pretty much just trying to blow up any religious box that we would put Jesus into. (laughs) Last week, we talked about Jesus showing up at a wedding feast, and he made somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 to 180 gallons of wine. If he made gasoline, that would be enough to get you to California and back in a car that consumes a lot of gas. It was a lot of wine. If you don't drink wine, it's a lot of wine. That's enough wine to, to get the party going indefinitely. And I asked the question last week, what do you do with this Jesus? He, he, he just doesn't seem to fit into ours. You know, I mentioned like Jesus is kind of the guy you'd want at your party, not the guy you wouldn't invite. He, he shows up at the party and he actually helps the party keep going. That's one version of Jesus that we see. But now we come to this Jesus, this, this 
showing of Jesus. And again, it doesn't fit kind of the meek and mild, timid Jesus. What, what, you know, in our culture, we kind of see this, this picture of Jesus many times, and he just kind of looks, you know, kind of, you know, pseudo-hippie, new age, you know, just a uh, nice guy, meek, timid. But, but what do you do with this Jesus who shows up at the temple and makes a whip and actually starts just like kicking butt, you know? And <laughs> I, that doesn't fit with what we think of Jesus very often, does it? Maybe, anybody with me? Okay, all right. <laughs> you know, I, 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 love, I love Christmas songs. We're, we're getting ready to do our, our Christmas Eve message this week, and I'm working on Christmas songs. Um, but I, I've got a funny story of, of when we moved to Abita Springs. Last year, we, we celebrated Christmas in Abita Springs for our first time. And we'd been living in Kenner for the seven years before that. So you have a certain mentality. Those of you who've lived in New Orleans, when you're down there, you, you're, you're kind of a little bit more on edge, perhaps, than you might be in uh, Robert or Abita Springs or one of these surrounding areas. And it was so funny because we come home from Sam's one night. We've got groceries, and it's a Friday night, and, and it's only like 6 or 7 o'clock, but it's dark outside. And our, our particular cul-de-sac didn't have any street lights, so it's really dark. So we're pulling up, and as we get out of the car, I, I can make out the shape of a minivan and some people uh, over here on the side, and I hear a voice say, Stop! Don't go in your house yet! And so me and Dina, we think, Oh my gosh, somebody must have broke into our house. So the first thing we do is we ran into the house to see if everything was all right. We're looking around. Everything looks in order. And then we're like, Oh my gosh, one of our neighbors probably got hurt or something or broke. So we come back outside. We're like, What's going on? And they start singing Christmas songs. <laughs> <laughs> And so we've, we've affectionately come to refer to uh, Abita Springs as, as Mayberry because uh, <laughs> in all our years in Kenner, we never had anybody uh, say, don't go in your house, and, and meaning that. <laughs> uh, but I love, I love Christmas music. I love getting ready for our, our Christmas service this week. But a, a lot of you may not know that this Tuesday is actually Hanukkah. And so I was going to start off this message. Has anybody heard Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song? <laughs> I have to run clips by my wife before I show him here at church. And so far, the last few weeks, they keep getting thumbs down. So I was going to start off with that because it does tie into the message a bit. Have you ever heard a message? Well, you, you can Google it when you get home. Um, you've probably never heard a message in a church about Hanukkah, but I want to say a few words about Hanukkah real quick, because I, I think for us to understand the text that we're looking at today, to understand what Jesus was doing, we need to kind of look at it through first century eyes. We talked about that a lot lately, that many times, I think as modern Americans, we can see that, wow, Jesus came in and he was really mad, and we think one certain thing, but it would have meant a much bigger thing to the people who were originally in the temple what Jesus did that day. What we're going to find out today is what Jesus did. It, it, it said a whole lot more than just, I'm mad that there are people setting up market in the temple. And to tell that story, I want to kind of tell a little bit about Israel's history with would-be messiahs. There was a guy back about 200 years before Jesus did his earthly ministry, there was a guy named Judas Maccabeus. And he led a revolt against a particularly... Uh, scumbag kind of leader named Antiochus Epiphanes. What had happened is the uh, Alexander the Great, you remember that guy from history? 
Greek, he kind of conquered most of the known world, and then afterwards, he, he, the Greek empire was kind of broken up to these Seleucid kings. I know I'm, I'm speaking history terms here. I love this stuff. But uh, basically, Antiochus Epiphanes was, was one of these kings from uh, Syria that was ruling on behalf of the Greeks. And he comes into Jerusalem, and he turns the temple that was dedicated to God to a temple dedicated to Zeus. Now, you realize how, how provocative that, I mean, that was like a no-no. It's not like we, I think sometimes we can tend to think of the temple in terms of like churches, like, but there was only one temple. There was one temple in the world, one place in the, on earth that they felt like God's presence dwelt. And Antiochus Epiphanes comes there and he dedicates it to Zeus, makes it a temple for Zeus, sets up idols in there. And then he forces the Jewish people to eat pork, you know, so basically forcing them to break their covenant with God. And so this guy, Judas Maccabeus, leads a revolution, and his wrestling name was Judah the Hammer. That's a good name, huh? Judah the Hammer! And so he leads a revolt against them, and then after three years, they overthrow the Greeks, and Jerusalem is liberated. And what does he do as his first act? He leads a triumphal procession to Jerusalem, and then he goes to the temple, and he cleanses it of all the pagan elements. And this is what they celebrate in Hanukkah. Did you know that? I didn't know that. So there you go. A little, I can't wait for Hanukkah. (laughs) So that was 200 years before the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now I want to fast forward 100 years beyond the earthly ministry of Jesus. There was a guy named Simon Barcochba who led another revolt against the pagan empire. But this time it wasn't the Greeks. This time it was the Romans. There was a a Roman uh, emperor named Hadrian who was another scumbag (laughs) Roman emperor. And he passed all kinds of legislations against the Jews. And so this one guy, Simon Barcochba, begins to lead another three-year revolt against Hadrian. And finally, they drive them out of town. Hadrian had set up a, a temple to Jupiter in Jerusalem. So again, this was a big no, no, the holy place he sets up. A, a, and so Simon, his nickname became Simon the Star. It's not as cool of a wrestling name. <laughs> this corner, Simon the Star. Um, versus Judah, the hammer, hammer, hammer. One night only. Uh, you like that? <laughs> Just in case this doesn't work out. <laughs> uh, so... So when Simon the star, Simon bar overthrows the, the Romans and liberates Jerusalem, what's he do? He goes in and cleanses the place of its, of its pagan influences, uh, all the stuff to Jupiter. He, he wipes it out. And actually, he was proclaimed by a, a Jewish rabbi, um, Rabbi Akiba, famous rabbi at the time, declared him to be the Messiah. And so actually, once they take over Jerusalem, they actually start minting coins that said year one. So AD 33, it says year one. AD 34, it says year two. AD 135 says year three. What were they saying? The Messiah has come, and and everything starts again. New creation, a new age, a new time. The only problem is they didn't make it past year 135 because the Romans, if you pick a fight with Rome, uh, you better be ready to keep fighting Rome. And so they came back in there and they absolutely destroyed them. Uh, they killed Bar Kochba, They ki- killed Rabbi Akiba. And many people later on would call Simon the star. They would call him Simon, son of the lie instead of son of the star because they saw that he was a false messiah. 
So are you seeing a thread here between these two people that were purported messiahs? What did they do? They set Jerusalem free and they cleansed the temple of its pagan influences. That's what the kings would do. Now, I want to go to the the king that was ruling um, during the time of Jesus' birth, Herod the Great. I got to go to, to, uh, to, to Israel back in February and I was not prepared for the fingerprint of Herod that you would see everywhere. This guy, he built stuff. I mean, he's a, a genius engineer, uh, a little bit narcissistic probably. And, uh, but he built, like, he built this one place we went to called Caesarea Maritima. Uh, it was a city out on the, the Mediterranean Sea that had a hippodrome and a coliseum. And it looked like Roman cities. And here it is in the Middle East. And then he built this amazing fortress called Masada uh, that, that was just had a palace with uh, hot running water in the middle of a desert uh, on top of this 5,000-foot mountain. Had running water, so it, really cool. And then he, he built a, a huge palace by Jerusalem where he actually created a mountain, actually built a mountain to build the palace on. And then the, the most famous achievement that he was famous for was building the, rebuilding the temple. And if you've, I, I wasn't prepared to, to see how big the temple was. I kind of, you know, I, I, I don't really have much of a grid for a temple. Is it just like a big church? This thing was massive. If you've ever seen on TV where they, they talk about the Western Wall, you see people putting their prayer request in a wall. Uh, that's, that's just one little wall that was left after the Romans destroyed the temple. It's this amazing complex that, that dominates the landscape of Israel. And, and Herod was, was famous for that. So Herod, he was different than the other would-be messiahs because he didn't try to overthrow the pagan influences. He didn't fight the Romans. He was actually a, a, as brilliant of an architect and engineer as he was. He was actually a brilliant politician as well. He was kind of anything he would do, he would make sure that he kissed up to the right people in power in Rome, and so they let him remain king of the Jews. And But even Herod... He realized part of being king, he had to deal with the temple. Even Herod, as pagan as he was, he wasn't, by any stretch of the imagination, a real devout person. It seems like he was kind of, uh, you know, hedonistic, pagan kind of person. But he realized, as the king of the Jews, he was, part of his job was building the temple, so do you see this? I just wanted to give these three examples over a 300-year period just to, to give you some of the reference for the way the Jewish people would understand what Jesus was doing. The great story of the Passover of David, it had been etched into the minds of the people and their scripture reading happens. The wicked rulers, the people suffering, the hero, the battle, the victory, the rule over surrounding nations, the establishment of God's dwelling. This is what the people were praying for. This is what they were hoping for when Jesus came on the scene. The temple was associated with the larger story from Jerusalem, from Jewish history, of victory over the enemies. When God's presence was in their midst, it meant they had victory over their enemies, and the temple was a sign on that. It was a sign of the liberation of the people from pagan influences. It was the Exodus narrative, the Passover narrative, all over again. So I wanted to say all that at the outset, because if we're to really get what Jesus was doing, it's, it's a much more provocative thing than we can. It wasn't just Jesus walking into church and getting angry. 
what Jesus was saying when he came there was that he was king. Because only kings cleansed the temple. Only kings rebuilt the temple. It was kings who had authority over the temple. Uh, the, the first temple was planned by who? King David. He, plan, he, he laid the plans for the first building. It was built by Solomon, his son. It was cleansed by Hezekiah, Josiah, even Judah the hammer. It was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and even Herod the Great. And then others hoped to defend it like Simon Bargioria and to rebuild it once more like Simon the Star. It was the kings throughout Jew, Jew, Jewish history who dealt with the temple, who had authority to do that. Jesus, the biggest sign that we need to see out of all this is Jesus was making the statement, I am king. This is my jurisdiction. It's interesting in this passage we find that Jesus is actually, this is the first time in in the book of John that we see Jesus refers to God as his father. And he refers to the temple not as the temple, but my father's house. Jesus is acting like he owns the place. <laughs> Jesus, what, who does he think he is? He's walking in here, turning over tables, getting a whip, driving people away. How would you like to be hit with a whip by Jesus? Uh, wow, that'd be a story to tell. He walks in here and he acts like he owns this place. That was the sign. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting here that a lot of people in this passage, that after Jesus does this, they say, well, What's the sign that you have authority to do this? And Jesus was like, that was the sign. You just, I just did the sign. <laughs> the sign was me kicking over tables, running the money changers out of here. <laughs> that was the sign. And they're like, well, what sign do you have to, to show that, that that sign was a sign? <laughs> Give us something else. He said, well, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the resurrection. He basically says, you know, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to rebuild it. And he was talking about, you know, foreshadowing the crucifixion and resurrection. Now, a lot of the people, it's kind of like the wedding party. What did we say last week? That, that Jesus does this amazing miracle, but most people don't even realize it. <laughs> like, there's all this amazing wine that he created, but the bride, the groom, the guest... None of them realized that a miracle had happened. The kingdom God broke loose in their midst and they didn't even see it. And that's what we see with this, with this miracle today is that Jesus does this sign. He comes in there, shows that he has authority over the temple. He cleanses the temple as a king would. And most people don't even see the sign. <laughs> There's a handful that do. And we see at the, at the end of John, that, at the end of that chapter, it says uh, that, that many people did see the signs and they did believe. So the first thing that we see is that, what, what did it mean when Jesus came to the temple? It was a sign that he was the king. He was the Messiah. Secondly, it was an act of judgment. Now this is where most people can see this one. It was an act of judgment. Jesus was coming in there. He's saying, my house, why, why are you making my father's house into this, this market? Now, just so you understand what was going on there, this was Passover week. And people, if you came to Jerusalem for Passover, you likely didn't bring your own lamb with you. <laughs> you know, you, you, you couldn't bring your own sacrifice. So you would go to the temple. You would buy an animal to be sacrificed on your behalf. There were sacrifices always going on in the temple. But to do that, the, the temple had its own currency system. So you had to go to a money changer over here, convert your Roman money into temple money. And then you'd go over here to the guy with the doves or the guy with the lambs. And, and you would do... So that, that's the transaction that's going on. But... 
This was actually happening, we can find this out from the other Gospels, that it was happening in the, the court of the Gentiles. In the temple, you had like the places where only Jews could go. Then you had a place where only, you know, Holy of Holies, where only the, the priests could go. But there was this, this outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And, and this was the place where if anybody who was not a Jew was going to encounter God, it would be the outer courts. It, it symbolized God wanting to bless all nations. But what had they turned the court of the Gentiles in, the place where outsiders could, could get exposed to God, what did they turn it into? They turned it into a place of merchandise. And not only that, there's reason to believe that there was corruption involved too. There were people who were like, you know, like anybody changing money, you know, you're making a little bit of money. You're, you're, you're making profit off of it. So this place where, where people who weren't Jews should be able to encounter God's presence had now just become a marketplace with animals and all that goes on with that. And Jesus is coming in there. Don't you get what my father is about? He's, he's, he's about blessing all of the nations. He's about people praying that, that everyone could encounter his goodness and his love. And you've turned this, as Jesus would say in one of the other gospels, you've turned it into a den of thieves. And, and he's mad. Israel, the temple, had, had missed the point. Now, it's interesting looking at Jesus as the Messiah because he's so different from Simon bar or Judah the Hammer or even Herod the Great. Because Herod compromised with the powers to get the temple built. These others attacked the powers that, bid, that, that were and, and, and led revolts against them. But Jesus doesn't come attacking the Romans. He doesn't come compromising with the Romans. Actually, who does he bring judgment on? The religious establishment itself. He's judging them. You guys have missed the point. This temple isn't about a club. It's not about lining your own pockets. It's not about uh, enriching your own lives. It's about what God wants to do in the world. And you have missed that point. Jesus was declaring judgment on the temple and the regime that ran it and stopping the sacrificial system itself for a brief but symbolic moment. Jesus overturning all these animals, running all the animals, he stopped the sacrificial system for a few moments, which will also point to one other thing. It was a sign that he was king, it was an act of judgment, and it was also pointing to a new covenant in which Jesus would be the Passover lamb. I talked about this a few weeks ago when John says, you're the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is beginning a new exodus, and he's actually the lamb, the, the blood on the doorpost of the universe by which you can get into that new exodus, where you can leave the land of slavery to sin on your way to new creation. It was pointing to a new covenant in which Jesus would be the Passover lamb, the very mediator between humanity and God. What's a mediator? Uh, under that system, it was the priest. The, the priests were, you know, if you wanted to get to God, you didn't like pray to God yourself. You would go to a, a mediator. Get me to God. Tell God, something, offer this sacrifice for me to cleanse me. Jesus became that mediator. And Jesus even... He's, he's making the statement in here, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Jesus is even making the, the absolutely scandalous statement that he is going to take the place of the temple himself. That Jesus is now going to be the temple. He's the place where heaven and earth connect. He is the gateway to the kingdom of God on earth. And then lastly... <laughs> I'll just put this in here. Jesus was starting a fight. (laughs) 
Now, if you read the Gospels, you're going to find a story about Jesus cleansing the temple in every Gospel. But in the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find it in the last week of his ministry. It was actually the thing that, that the, the straw that broke the camel's back. When they did, that's how scandalous this was. I want you to understand, this wasn't just an angry guy showing up at a religious gathering. We see that sometimes. This was like an act of uh, treason. Like, oh, like, who does he think he is? We've got to kill him. Now, John has this happening at the beginning. And, and, and there's certainly, you know, I, I believe there's probably two times that he cleansed the temple. One, once at the beginning of his ministry and then once at the end. They both happen on Passover week, though. Jesus is, is making a statement. He's tying into the symbolic story of the people of Israel, and he's making a statement. And they would have no doubt gotten it, at least some of them. There's a, there's a scene in the movie Braveheart. Any Braveheart fans here? There's a scene where William Wallace, uh, played by Mel Gibson, he, he leads the armies. He goes out there with the armies of Scots to face the British for the first time. And the British nobles come out there and they're like, oh, they're going to have the Scottish nobles are just going to come over here and brown nose for a minute. And then we'll give them promises of new lands and stuff and everybody will go home. And after they get done doing that, William Wallace says, uh, I'm, I'm going out there to talk to them. They're like, what do you mean? He's like, I'm going to pick a fight. <laughs> And he picks a fight. <laughs> and he does something so provocative that it begins this war between the Scots and the English, which ultimately leads to the Scots being freed. What Jesus did in the temple, it was picking a fight. It was provocative. It wasn't, it wasn't some mild thing. The reason it seems so crazy is because it was crazy. As, it, as crazy as it might look to us as modern-day people, you don't even begin to realize how crazy it would have been to somebody in that world at that time who'd lived with the history of Israel. So, we see that it was a sign that he was king to an act of judgment, pointing to another covenant and starting a fight. There's all kinds of things that Jesus was doing that day. but uh, So that's what it meant back then. So what the heck does it mean to us today? <laughs> what does this story, is there any bearing that this crazy story about Jesus getting mad and coming in with a whip and turning over, is there any application for that today or can we just go, go home and, and get ready to watch the Saints game? Well, I, I think under the New Testament sense, I'm actually probably going to do a message about this in January. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he calls the gathering of people in Corinth, he says, you guys are the temple of the living God. You, all of you together when you gather around God, you're the place where God's presence dwells. It used to be Jerusalem, but now it's this community of people gathered around the king. You're the temple. And so, with that kind of thinking in mind, I, I want to ask us the question today. What if Jesus shows up at church? That's, a, that's kind of a funny question. What if Jesus walked into church here today or any church in America? Would we find this version of Jesus? Would he be angry at the corruption? Would he be angry at the way we've aligned ourselves with the power of this world? Would he be angry with the way we've compromised with with the government of America or, or with other social issues, would he be angry at that? Or would he commend us? It's not a fun question to ask. And we can actually see one place in, in the New Testament where Jesus actually did show up to church, at least 
by mail. Uh, the Apostle John wrote another book called Revelations. Real scary book. Uh, <laughs> but at the beginning of that book, Jesus writes a letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. These are some of the, the, the newest churches that had, you know, these were first century Christian churches. These were the first people, the first communities to be gathered around Jesus. And, and Jesus, in his revelation to John, he gives a message to the seven churches. And in each one of these churches, we find that Jesus is either rebuking them and encouraging them. Some of them don't get rebuked. There's two of them that actually make it without any rebuke. I'd want to be at that church. But <laughs> I want to kind of summarize it. We don't have time to go through you know, verse by verse, but I, I want to just say something about each of these churches. The first church, and you can go back and read later. This is in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. The first church that Jesus speaks to is the church of Ephesus. And he, he tells Ephesus, he says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing grossly here, so just hang on with me. Uh, he, he, he basically tells Ephesus, you guys love the truth. Matter of fact, you're great at righteousness and all that stuff and, and pointing out who's in, who's out, and, 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 and doing that. But he's like, there's one problem. You've forgotten your first love. <laughs> You've forgotten your love. Have you ever known anybody like that? You, you love you love morality, you love social causes, you love talk radio, <laughs> you love commentators on the news that, that agree with you, but you kind of get distracted sometimes for loving Jesus. I think we can all get there. I get there sometimes. I remember when I first became a Christian, the, the worst thing you can do as a new Christian is to listen to preachers on AM radio, and uh, unless you want to be really confused, because you get a, a wide variety of... of eccentric views on God on AM radio. Uh, I remember as a young Christian, I used to listen to some guy that would come on, and his whole ministry was about pointing out heretics in the body of Christ, like, like judging people who weren't quite true. And maybe he was true, but the, the only problem is I found when I kept listening to it is I, I wouldn't really be loving God much. I'd be ju- more judgmental, and I don't need help being more judgmental. Can I get an Amen. <laughs> <laughs> the church in Ephesus, they love truth, but they forgot their first love. And Jesus says, return to your first love. Don't, don't, don't lose the point that this is a relationship with, with your creator who loves you. Second church was a church called Smyrna, and they didn't get a rebuke. Basically, Jesus says, I know you're going through a tough time right now. I know it, it, it just seems like, like I'm not even on your side probably. But he says, hang on. And don't be afraid. Hang on. Don't be afraid. I'm with you, no matter what it looks like. Then to the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira, Jesus says a very similar thing to both of them. Basically, they were letting immorality and idolatry slip in under the guise of Christian liberty. So you, you may have been to a church like this before where it's like, hey, you know, just, just the grace of God, do whatever you want. God, God loves you. And, and, and so under the guise of Christian liberty, they were kind of just saying, oh, well, we can do anything we want. Now, now sexual immorality that they talk about there, back in that day, it was often tied to re- religion. There, you, you would go down to your local temple to Zeus and they would have temple prostitutes. So sexuality wasn't just sexually immoral. It it was often tied to flat-out idolatry, and and that was a big issue in a lot of the churches. And so Jesus is saying, you've let this junk in under the guise of of Christian liberty, under the guise of of my love. You've you've let bad stuff in. So what does he tell these two churches? He says, repent. (laughs) 
And hold on. Repent. Change what you're thinking on this. And, and hang on to me. Then there's the church in Sardis. This church, he says, you look like you're alive, but you're dead within. You ever been to a church like that before? There's churches that, that may have everything on the outside, a beautiful building. They may have programs. They may have all kinds of high-tech things. And you're like, wow, this place is kicking. But it's dead within. And Jesus is, is saying, just like the, he, Jesus actually said stuff to the Pharisees about this before. You look like you're, you're great on the outside, but you're, you're filled with dead men's bones. He's telling this church, you're a hypocrite. You look alive, but, but, but you're dead within. What does he tell them? <laughs> Wake up. Hold on. Hold fast and repent. <laughs> Wake up. Then to the church of Philadelphia, he says, you have a little strength and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He doesn't have a rebuke for Philadelphia. He says, you don't have much going for you, but you, you've held on and you haven't denied my name. I would like to be counted in the Philadelphia church. <laughs> you know, you, there may be other churches that have a, a lot better things going on, bigger buildings, more programs, whatever, but, more money, whatever. But, but you've, you've done good with what I've given you. I commend you for that. And then finally, there's the church of Laodicea. And I, I, I honestly think that this is probably one of those churches that, that most of us can identify with at some point in our life. Laodicea, Jesus uses the analogy. He says, you're not hot or cold. You know, I'm a big fan of iced coffee, and I'm a big fan of hot coffee. I'm not a big fan of the coffee that sits up on my stand when I'm speaking that I try to drink at the end of the message. I'm like, ooh. <laughs> Jesus says, some of the churches, they're dead within. They're just cold. <laughs> some of the churches like Philadelphia, they're hot. But when I look at you guys, you're just, you're, you're lukewarm. You're not hot or cold. You're just kind of mediocre. And, and you make me want to vomit. I don't want to get that word from Jesus. <laughs> you make me sick at my stomach. You make me want to puke. Again, this kind of challenges our ideas of, of Jesus a little bit. But the, the sad thing from, for, for the church of Laodicea is that they're unaware of their condition. Like Jesus says, you think you can see, you think you're dressed up in all these fine clothes, you think you're rich, but from my point of view, you're wretched and blind and naked. <laughs> it's like the emperor's new clothes. You, <laughs> you think you got all this, but I, I see you. And I see that, that you don't really got it going on like you think. So what does he tell to them? He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Find something of true value from me. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can really see. And I love this last thing that Jesus says. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So he doesn't leave it with, you make me want to puke. <laughs> I... I I throw up in my mouth every time I look at you. He doesn't leave it there. <laughs> he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. 
I love this picture. I love that, that Jesus, after apprising these churches and rebuking them, saying some very harsh words, he says, look, I'm just waiting outside the door. I'm knocking. All you got to do is let me in, and we're going to sit down at a table and eat together. That's a beautiful picture to me. That's a beautiful picture that, that speaks of intimacy and relationship, of being connected with God. So I, I ask you today, you know, if, if Jesus showed up today, if he was writing a letter to North Shore Vineyard or, or to any of us as individuals, where would you fit on that thing? Would you be considered like Philadelphia? You're, you're hanging, it on, hanging on, giving it all you got, and, and you, you've kept the faith? Is that where you're at? Well, awesome. Be encouraged. But maybe, maybe you're in that Laodicea camp where you're just, you, you, you kind of, it's not that you're opposed to God anymore. You believe in God, I show up at church, you know, God's great. But you've just kind of got a mediocre existence. You leave God in the church building every week and, and you go about your regular day life thinking that you got it all together. Maybe, maybe you're just living a lukewarm life. Or maybe... Maybe like Jesus says to the one church in there that, that you look like you got it going on on the outside, but you're dying on the inside. I lived so many years that way, even as a Christian. Smiling on the outside, saying praise the Lord, singing worship songs. But if anybody saw what was on the inside, man, I was dying. I was dying. I wasn't connected with God. I was afraid. If anybody saw me, well, that they'd run me out of there. Well, Jesus sees you, and he loves you. And he wants you to open your heart to him. So just ask yourself this morning, what's Jesus saying to you? I don't know what he's saying to any of you. I don't know. Let's just close our eyes and let's just get quiet for a moment. Lord, this morning we just ask you to reveal to us where, where you might see us right now, Lord. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, even when you rebuke us, God, it's, it's not condemning, it's not guilt, Lord. We thank you that, that your words aren't to punish us but to free us, Lord. We thank you that you love us enough to, to, to speak the truth to us, Lord. And so, God, wherever we're at on that list today, God, whether we've just been faithful, pl- faithfully plugging along, going after you with all our hearts, or, Lord, maybe, maybe we're dying on the inside. Maybe we've been distracted by trying to pick out the faults of, of other people but, but forsaking our first love. Or maybe, like Laodicea, we've just, just kind of grown 
lukewarm in our whole spiritual walk. Lord, today, right now, God, we turn our hearts to you, Lord. We turn to you. We turn to you with all of our hearts, Lord. Lord, we just open the door of our heart right now and we invite you in. Lord, we thank you that your goodness turns our hearts. Your love reaches us. We thank you that you haven't let go, Lord. Amen.